On the 4th of July uh, this year, the night before a referendum on whether the Greek government should accept another bailout contingent on further drastic austerity measures demanded by the Eurogroup, I joined fellow Australians of Greek origin at an inner city bookshop where an academic was leading discussion on the issue. As so much was at stake, including hope, passions ran high. At the centre of both the hope and the venom was the finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, who some believed was destroying any chance of achieving the best outcome for Greece. At the conclusion of the event, a young man came up and asked me whether I knew Varoufakis. Do you realise how arrogant he is? He lectured his European colleagues for 45 minutes and I wondered how it was that we could be convinced that speaking for 45 minutes when your country's future is at stake would be such a transgression. We needed to understand better what was going on and what was going wrong. When the Syriza government capitulated to the Eurogroup a few days later, despite a resounding no vote in that referendum, and by this stage, an even more punishing proposal was on the table, Yanis quit office, refusing to sign up to what he called a calamitous program, condemning the Eurogroup's fiscal waterboarding of the Greek government in the face of failed attempts to terrorise the Greek people by shutting down the banks. Since then, Yanis has been speaking extensively in Britain and Europe, where his proposals to shake up the European establishment have resonated widely, exposing what he calls the Eurogroup's extend and pretend strategy. He offers an alternative plan to unite a floundering Europe and transform its governance to strengthen both democracy and the economy. And support for this self-proclaimed erratic Marxist economist has come from some surprising quarters, including bankers and the highly respected Financial Times. Now, we genuflect before the Financial Times. Um, it not only tells us how to make it, but it tells us how to spend it if we're very, very rich. At a recent banking conference, the Financial Times chief economics commentator, Martin Wolf, endorsed Yanis, saying he's right about what happened in Europe and that his plan for fixing the Eurozone is very impressive and very imaginative. Incidentally, Yanis recently published that much maligned first speech to his colleagues in the Eurogroup. Read it on his blog and you will find it you will struggle to find it anything other than rational, reasonable, uh, courageous and constructive. But a person with a record of speaking truth to power was bound to strike trouble in Brussels where he says, truth is only spoken when the microphone is turned off. So what lies behind the Eurogroup's strategy? Is there a better way for Greece and indeed for Europe? And how can we strengthen our democracy in the age of finance? Answers to all this and more from a man who has penned numerous books on the global economy, including the very accessible Global Minotaur, but who has also found himself in the eye of the storm. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Yanis Varoufakis.
Thank you, Mary, for the extremely kind introduction. Thank you, Anne, and to a big thank you to all the good people of this magnificent temple of uh, public, intellectual, and artistic endeavor. We need a lot more of this around the world. Experiments in democracy is the topic for today. Now, one of the huge errors of our era is that we take democracy for granted. We tend to think of it as, part, as a natural phenomenon, as a part of the furniture of our societies. It's a grave error because there is no more fragile a flower than the flower of democracy. And indeed, it can be trampled upon without us even realizing it, with terrible repercussions for the present and the future. And I want to relate a story that I think Mary, inadvertently, perhaps, um, has already introduced to you. My first presence in the governing body of the Eurozone area. In that first meeting in the Eurogroup, sometime in early February, I tried to ease myself into that collection of uh, finance ministers and bureaucrats from the various institutions by making what I thought was a very straightforward point. What was the point? That the Greek state had a certain set of obligations towards the troika of lenders, our creditors, the Eurogroup, and of course, because a state has continuity, uh, the new government, our government, which had just been elected, had, of course, a commitment of sorts to this particular prog prog program, to this particular set of policies. On the other hand, in addition to this, uh, there is also, this is what I was saying to my colleagues in the Eurogroup, um, a competing principle, the principle of democracy, because we were elected on a mandate to challenge the very logic of that program. And I asked a rhetorical question, what happens in a democracy when two principles clash? The principle of continuity and the principle of the democratic mandate that we had just received from the Greek people. The answer is a compromise. So I'm here, I said to them, in order to work with you to find common ground between a program that has been implemented in my country for five years with terrible results, one third of national income had been lost. Unemployment increased by 20%. No one, no one could claim that that was a successful program. And our new mandate. We will compromise, we will seek common ground, and very soon we should be able to establish the new parameters. So I sat down, or actually I was sitting down already, but nevertheless I stopped talking. And at that point, uh, my German counterpart, Dr. Wolfgang Schäuble took the floor and astounded me and I think quite a few of uh, my counterparts with the following words verbatim. Democracy cannot be allowed to change anything. Now, he had a rationale. The way that the Eurozone is structured with 19 different countries, each one of them having a different mandate, is very unwieldy. So the, the point he was making was that you know, a contract is a contract, and the fact that you were elected in order to challenge it means nothing to me. My response was that, be that as, as it may, this kind of expression is the greatest gift one can make to the Chinese Communist Party, 
whose policy of combining a free market economy with a lack of a democratic process was effectively copied from Singapore. It was the original idea by Lee Kuan Yew. So the question I asked my European colleagues was whether we wanted the European Union to be run along the principles of Deng Xiaoping and Lee Kuan Yew. It is an interesting question, because let's not forget that as we speak, half of the world, maybe more than half of the world, are looking to China and Singapore as a better model than that of the liberal democracies. This is a challenge that we face in the West, and one that we have to confront head on. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how democratic do we want our polities to be? What do we mean by that? And what does this mean about the future of the global economy, especially when you have countries like China that tow the Schäuble line 100%? That democracy cannot be allowed to change things. Let's go back, to, if you allow me, to the etymology, not the etymology, the original definition of democracy. Aristotle defined democracy as a constitution in which the freeborn and the poor control the government, being at the same time the majority. The freeborn, the free, and the poor control government. His definition of liberty, eleftheria, or the free person, free man, of course, was that it was a gentleman who does not live at someone's beck and call because he must provide dependent labor on some master. That was the original definition of liberal and democracy. Now, democracy was not a very popular idea. Most of the ancient Greek greats that uh, uh, we revere today loathed it. Aristotle was one of them. Plato was the, the worst anti-democrat one can imagine. Worst the most fierce opponent of democracy. He actually believed that anyone supplying necessary good, goods and services, anyone who actually worked, was unfit for high office. In the ancient Athenian democracy, it's very easy today to dismiss it because of whom it excluded. It excluded women, it excluded refugees, it excluded migrants, and of course it excluded slaves. And it's easy, therefore, to dismiss it as a not particularly democratic regime. At the very same time, it would be a mistake to do this, because the subject that defined ancient Greek, ancient Athenian democracy, was not the slave, but it was the laboring poor citizen who had equal rights for the very first time in history, and possibly the last, with the aristocrats and the oligarchs. For the first time, the oligarchs and the working poor, who happened to be men and citizens, had isigoria, an essential part of democracy. Isigoria means something extremely important, something we lack today. Not only the right to free speech, but also the right to have an opinion whose weight, relative weight, in decision-making is independent of who you are, whether you are rich, poor, well-spoken, or not well-spoken. So these are the elements of democracy. Now, let's go to just leap from ancient Athens, where democracy lasted for a few decades and then perished, to democracy's resurgence, 
If we're going to find the roots of today's liberal democracies, we should not be looking at ancient Athens. And the fundamental juxtaposition should be between the kind of slavery that the Athenians had with the kind of slavery which was overcome in the West in order to give rise to liberal democracies. In ancient Athens, slaves were agrarian. They produced goods and services, but not so much in order to sell them, for use by the masters. There was very little that was produced in ancient Athens for sale. It was for the use of the masters. Whereas con compare this to the industrial scale slavery in the Caribbean, in Latin America, um, of course, the source of it being Africa, the plantation. The plantation was a commercial enterprise, a corporate venture, including slavery. Today's democracy comes from those roots. The Constitution of the United States can be traced back to the Glorious Revolution of 1688 in Britain, which can be traced back, if you want, to the Magna Carta. Now, compare and contrast the ancient Athenian model of freedom and democracy with that of Britain, which was then transplanted both to Australia and the United States. In the case of the Athenians, in, in the writings of, or the rhetoric of Clisthenes or Solo, the free subject was the masterless person who was not a servant to anyone. Whereas Magna Carta, what was the Magna Carta about? It was about the freedom of masters from the king and a freedom that involves the right to have slaves and servants. Quite different. Now, in the United States, as this great democracy began to be built, one of the most significant persons, both in terms of the financial constitution of the United States and its ideology, was Alexander Hamilton. Let me read to you something that he said, he wrote in the Federalist Paper number 31, in which he talks about mechanics, artisans, people who work with their hands. And he said that they are sensible, these people, the mechanics, the workers, that their habits in life have not been such as to give them those acquired endowments without which, in a deliberative assembly, in a congress, in a parliament, the greatest natural abilities are for the most part useless. And then he concludes, and that's the important bit. We must therefore consider merchants as the natural representatives of all classes. So our democracies, are founded on the notion of the free merchant, the free propertyed man initially. And a complete separation for the first time in history between the political sphere and the economic sphere. In ancient Athens, the two were one. If you had political power, you had economic power. And if you had economic power, you had political power. In modern societies, modern societies, capitalist societies, if you want, emerged through the separation of the political sphere from the economic sphere. Think of the merchant, beginning with the merchant of Venice, if you want. The merchant acquires economic power, but has no political power. He's considered to be a vulgar person, initially, a person who was not allowed in polite society. But as merchant power began to grow, it came into conflict with the aristocracy, and that produced the modern liberal state with the checks and balances on the aristocracy, on the king, as to how much power they had over the merchants. From that moment onwards, what we have is 
what I call a prey-predator dynamic. Take a population of predator fish, it could be sharks, it could be anything, and a population of prey that the predator feed on. The more successful the predators are in hunting and eating the prey, the closer to extinction they come, because there will be no prey left. So as the predators get more successful, the elements, the seeds of a crisis for the predators are planted. And eventually they start starving. They start dying off, and then the prey recover, the population of prey recover again. This is the kind of relationship that we've been witnessing over the last 200 years between the political and the economic sphere. The economic sphere is the predator that's eating into the political sphere. Have you ever wondered why our politicians are not what they used to be? It's not a question of DNA degenerating. It's a question of the political sphere shrinking. If you were a prime minister, Menzies, in the 50s and 60s, you had a lot more power than Malcolm Turnbull has today. This is not a personal thing. This is the way political power is shrinking and economic, especially financial power, is rising. But just like in the predator model, the more powerful the financialized capital sector becomes, the greater the preponderance of economic crisis, of financial crisis, which then give rise to a slight uptick again in the political sphere. We saw this after 2008 in the United States, in Britain, in the Eurozone, here. The collapse of the financial sector, which happened as a result of its triumph at colonizing the world, led to a slight revival in events like this one, in a political discourse that before 2008, 2009 had died off. So there is this epic drama. On the one hand, you have the economic sphere that is cannibalizing the political sphere and trying to effectively take the demos out of democracy and succeeding by removing the power of the elected representatives. You have quantities triumphing over qualities. You have price triumphing over values. You have capital triumphing over labor. But the greater this triumph, the greater the crisis that occurs at some point. This epic drama is at the center of developments in the United States today and the European Union. And those developments, of course, affect Australia or countries like Australia, since countries like Australia are utterly dependent on the dynamic of capital accumulation, of financialization, and of political changes in the metropolis of global capitalism. Now, allow me to just go, come back to Europe, since I began my story with uh, the Eurozone, and talk to you about the European Union for a moment, as a case in point for what I've been saying. What is the difference between Brussels, the effective government of the European Union, and the federal government in Canberra, or in Washington, D.C., or the government of London in Whitehall? The fundamental difference is that nation states like the Australian Federation, like the American Federation, like British, the British government, the essential aspect of it is that emerged as a result of class conflict over centuries. Initially in Britain, I will refer to Magna Carta between the king and the barons, then the merchants came in, 
and took a lot of power and they imposed their own ideology, if you want, and agenda on government. Then you had the organized working class in the form of the trades unions movement. So all these different uh, representatives, institutions of different social forces and social classes clashed to produce liberal democratic governments and constitutions. The European Union was very different. The European Union has a history as the administrative branch of a cartel. The first name of the European Union was the European Community of Coal and Steel. Just like OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, is a cartel whose purpose is to stabilize price by limiting competition between its members, and they have an administration that administers this enterprise. That was how the European Union began life in 1950. Then other industries were co-opted. The farmers, particularly the French farmers, through something called the common agricultural policy, the car makers, and so on and so forth. So the Brussels technocracy was created not as the government of, the Euro of United Europe, but as the administrators working towards limiting competition between heavy industries and the various industrial sectors that were co-opted, and managing Europe as if it were a corporation. That's very different to having a government like the Australian government, the American government, the British government, the German government for that matter, which was a result of centuries, decades of class conflicts, the purpose of which was to create a political process to equilibrate and stabilize society. Now, the problem with this kind of cartel is that when it spans different countries, like France, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, Northern Italy, that's where the locus of the uh, heavy industries was, and they have different currencies, you have to have a fixed exchange rate regime between them in order to stabilize the cartel. This is the origin of the common currency. But what happens when you graft a common a, a money, a form of money, on top of an administration that has a very deep-seated, platonic almost, contempt for democracy? You end up with a European Union which is profoundly, by design, a democracy-free zone. And the problem emerges simply because democracy is not a luxury to be afforded those who are powerful and rich. Democracy is essential for equilibrating both the economy and the society that is founded on technological process. So, to cut a very long story short, as I began saying, democracy is a highly fragile flower. Democracy, the world, has been emptied of content in many of our societies and it has been usurped and utilized by those who have contempt for the demos. In Europe, because we have both fragmentation, we don't have a solid federation as Australia is, as the United States is, and we combine this with a democracy-free zone that administers on behalf of specific vested interests the whole area, you end up with inefficient economic policies and toxic policies. And when these economic policies lead to a crisis like the one we've been having since 2008, the result is that the original authoritarianism becomes even more powerful. Democracy 
is even um, set aside at the level of the rhetoric, remember Dr. Schäuble, and the political and economic crisis, the crisis of the political sphere and the economic sphere, feed into each other, causing centrifugal forces that are pulling our nations apart, turning us against one another, with the result that when a geopolitical, geopolitical crisis emerges, like Ukraine, ISIS, Libya, and when the refugee crisis is added on top of that, we find ourselves in no position to handle a common problem by means of common democratically, democratically decided uh, policies. Whether our future is worth having will depend on proving that Lee Kuan Yew, the Communist Party of China, and Dr. Soible were wrong. Thank you. Thank you, Yanis. Look. Thank you, Yanis. You've uh, described uh, very clearly um, perhaps why Europe is having uh, the problems that it's having. It seems that they are congenital, in fact. Um, what I'd like to ask you to begin with is uh, about the challenge of achieving transformation in a democracy, because a dictator can do whatever they like until it all comes a cropper. But um, Andrew Clark in The Australian yesterday said that what Malcolm Turnbull is calling on the Australian public to do through his Innovation Nation project is to make our own history. Uh, now, in Greece, it was the reverse. It was the people calling on their government to make their own history, to take charge of their destiny. Um, in fact, they reasserted that call at a referendum. And then, despite the fact that the government disregarded that, they voted Syriza in again. What does the Syriza experience tell us about the political process and the democratic process and the capacity to achieve transformation in a democracy? To start with, the comparison between Australia and Greece is a, is, is a very uneven one, but nevertheless useful. Because in Greece, we lack the capacity to set our own monetary policy. Now, money is very important. If you want, it's the rarefied uh, reflection of economic power. A government that does not control its money is a government without sovereignty. Australia has control over its own money. And indeed, if you didn't have the Australian dollar, instead you had the US dollar, uh, after 2008, today you would be in a very, very sorry state, right? like we are. The I'm not against having unification and integration as we do in Europe. The problem was that the, the way we, effectively, to put it in democratic terms, I won't speak as economists, I'll speak as, as a political subject now. We took our sovereignty and we transferred it to the center, except the center didn't hold it. It allowed it to fall into a black hole. It's not in Tasmania, Tasmanians and the New South Welsh, is that the, how you call them? How Welsh, Welshmen and Welshwomen. Yes. Um, you transfer your sovereignty to the level of the Federation, 
where it is utilized at the, in, in Canberra in order to keep checks and balances on decision makers. In Europe, we don't have that. We transfer our sovereignty to a black hole and it falls in there and disappears. And the result is, as you, as you were implying, uh, a very serious difficulty in uh, affecting democratic change. Now, the Syriza government tried, we tried, collectively, I have to say that. We tried to argue this case with Brussels and with Frankfurt, to say that the reason why we were elected was because what Frankfurt and Brussels were doing for five years, six years before our election, had failed. We were a party of 4%. The Greeks did not suddenly um, become all radical lefties and vote us in. They voted us in because the previous program failed. So we wanted to renegotiate this program in order to create the foundation on which we would have a democratic discourse. And this uh, demand of ours, this... Uh, uh, the, the audacious uh, claim that we should have a say in arresting this debt deflationary crisis was completely and utterly rejected. And there was a concerted effort on behalf of our lenders to crush a government that dared oppose them. Alexis Tsipras and I disagreed in June, July as to whether we should fight on or not. But that was our common project. Mm. You've talked about the biggest deficit in Europe being a democratic deficit. So how would you make Europe democratic? What, would you, what, what needs to happen? Firstly, you, we must begin with a realisation of how difficult it is. Many members of the audience may wonder, what is this guy going on about? Europe is a democratic continent. Every official has been elected. Yes and no. It is true that all the finance ministers represented in the Eurogroup have been elected. But the real power in the Eurogroup is not the finance ministers. They are people that Europeans have never elected that don't even know the names of. And in the end, the Eurogroup as a body is not answerable to any parliament. So ideally, we should change this and just return to some basic principles of accountability. As Tony Benn used to say, to have a proper democracy, you must be able as a citizen to ask the following questions of your rulers. Firstly, what powers do you have? Secondly, who gave them to you? Thirdly, how do you use them? And fourthly, how can we get rid of you? These four questions cannot be answered in Europe as I speak. So the, the answer to your question is, we need to reconstitute our institutions in such a way as to make these questions answerable. Now, of course, you can't leap suddenly from the current fragmented nature, authoritarian nature of the European Union, the cartel-like um, configuration into a federal democracy, especially during a crisis that is, as I was saying before, uh, setting one proud nation against another, quite tragically. So we need to take some small steps. The first step that I would like to see uh, being adopted, and it's not a radical one, and yet it is, is that all the meetings of the Eurogroup, of the European Council, even of the Central Bank, are live-streamed, so that citizens can see and hear what their representatives are saying on their behalf. This doesn't sound very radical, I can assure you it is. <laughs> Secondly, the European Union Council should decide 
to reconfigure, redeploy existing institutions within the next few months in order to deal decisively and efficiently, which is the opposite of what's happening now, with four particular sub-crises. Public debt, investment, very low investment, uh, the banking crisis that is uh, festering throughout the European Union, and the rise of poverty, which is leading to the rise of ultranationalism, uh, xenophobia, and in some countries like mine, neo-Nazism. These things can be dealt with very efficiently. I mean, we could have a very long discussion on this, of how this could be done. The political will is not there to do it. We can discuss as to why the political will is, is, is not there. And finally, how about coming, coming up, convening a constitutional assembly to write a constitution for the European Union in the next two to three years? Uh, you've said, Yanis, that in the age of uh, finance, um, that democracy serves the few. And obviously, in order for democracy to serve the many in the age of capitalism, the majority, um, we need the right institutions, the right processes, the right levers and protections. But also, we need the appetite and the conviction to rein in the promiscuity in the financial sector. Do you see that actually happening anywhere? Is there in any as any Western democracy, that conviction and, and, and appetite? We saw it after 2008, but it resembled a driver who is caught speeding. At first, after you are caught on the highway, you respect the speed limit religiously for the first 20 minutes. <laughs> and then after that, you start edging up your speed. At least that's what I do. Okay? <laughs> this, this, if you want, is a parallel or a parable for what has been happening. Uh, that initial political will to rein the financial sector in has now fizzled away. And instead, we have institutions that supposedly do this. But you know what, Mary? I don't believe that we can do it at the moment. The problem with financialization is that it is inimical to the interests of capital and to the rest of society. So in the end, if you're an industrialist making things, you feel the pressure of financialization. Let me give you a simple example, General Motors. By 2008-2009, General Motors was no longer a car company. They, it used to be a very large, very prominent, very important automobile manufacturer with a tiny small department of finance, the purpose of which was to give loans to prospective car buyers to buy cars from GM. By 2008, General Motors was a big financial ba uh, bank uh, bank uh, company, which was um, taking huge bets in the financial sector, and they had a small compartment making cars. And when the financial bubble collapsed, General Motors collapsed. So fin finance financialization destabilizes society and undermines capitalism. Uh, in 1991, socialism died when the incongruous uh, experiment of the Soviet Union satellites collapsed. In 2008, capitalism died. Because when I was young and excited in the de debates, by the debates between the left and the right, those for capitalism, those for socialism, the argument in favor of capitalism, you will recall that, was that it's, uh, the marketplace is a, a realm of fierce competition between um, risk-taking, courageous entrepreneurs, um, they 
put all their eggs in the basket of the innovation or the good or the service that they're providing, and if they succeed, they make a lot of money, so this is a just reward for their efforts. If they fail, they go bankrupt. Well, from the 1980s onwards, with financialization, we had a situation where if you were a financier, you made a lot of money simply building on um, fictitious values that didn't exist, and then when those collapsed in 2008, the taxpayer would bail you out. So this Darwinian process effectively was inversed. It was turned on its head, and the more bankrupt you were, the more power you had. So it, it was success of the most bankrupt. And this is terrible for capitalism. So capitalism, we, we don't live in capitalism now. We have a different regime, I call it bankruptocracy. Uh, the more bankrupt you are as a banker, the greater your social power over the rest of society and your capacity to extract economic rents from them. Um, you, the, the other problem, of course, is how to tax the very rich. Um, they're very well connected, so in Greece, they're not taxed. In Australia, we're trying to have a conversation about reforming superannuation, which is being used as a wealth creation vehicle. Uh, how much of a challenge, I mean, I mean who, who's going to meet that challenge? Who, are there, is it possible to meet that challenge? Because you were talking about the separation earlier between politics and economics, but in fact they're connected in the following way. Um, political parties receive donations. I mean, that's, that's how they look at, you know, this is the reality of, of the situation. So how, how are we going to address that issue? How are we going to ensure that they pay, they pay the right tax, not just in Greece, but everywhere. At the level of the G20, there's no alternative. When you have uh, tax inversion regimes in Ireland, in Britain, in Liechtenstein, in Luxembourg, and the very same politicians, by the way, that were lambasting us in Greece for not having clamped down on tax evasion are the ones who are running large tax evasion schemata, as we say in Greek, um, Irony triumphs over reality. So either the G20 are going to come to an agreement amongst themselves that will stop companies like Apple, like Facebook and so on, doing the double Dutch Irish sandwich, which, you know, this is how accountants refer to it, um, where you shift your headquarters to Dublin, uh, then you have um, a special vehicle, financial vehicle established in the Netherlands, which is connected to some Caribbean island. And then in, in the end, these conglomerates pay uh, one, uh, one cent per dollar of tax. The only way of breaking this down is if at the level of G20 there is an agreement. Let's be honest about this. There's nothing that an individual government can do. Uh, because in the end, any government that moves against powerful vested interests is going to come up against the press, which is also influenced by the same vested interests, by the whole financial sector of one's own country. And what they will be saying to you, they will be accusing you of um, imp implementing policies which will effectively lead to a flight of capital away from your country to some other country where they will have an easier tax regime. And they would be also be right on this, is that this is the tragedy. So either there's going to be some coordination. The OECD under Angel Guria, the Secretary General, they're trying, they're doing their best in this regard. But international organizations will never be able 
to solve the problem until the G20 decide to act in unison. Okay, well, let's talk about solving the problem of the global economy more generally. At the end of your book, uh, The Global Minotaur, which is about how the global economy works, so it's not a bad start if you are interested. Um, you say that, you talk about China, you talk about Europe, other parts of the world, and you say that uh, the only thing that can lead a global recovery, the only the United States can lead a global recovery. Now, what are you hoping that the United States will do? Coordinate the, the G20 to discuss, to discuss, to come to terms with three major issues. We mentioned one, coordination regarding taxation. Mm. But there are two other issues that uh, are even more pertinent. The first one concerns global imbalances. At the moment, what, well, at the moment, up until 2008, the reason why the global economy was going gangbusters for 10, 15, 20 years before 2008 was because the United States of America was recycling everybody else's surpluses. Who are the everybody else? Germany, Netherlands, Japan, and later China. How were they doing this? By running a huge trade deficit. They were importing all these net exports from Germany, Mercedes-Benzes, and from China, all sorts of clothing and iPhones made in China into American territory. And how were they paying for this huge deficit? They were paying simply by also importing the spare cash of these countries. Uh, if you were a German industrialist, a Chinese industrialist, and you made a lump of money, you sent it to Wall Street because you felt that the financialization process there gave you better returns, and you did. So you have this recycling. The United States was being effectively the global recycler, the recycler of global surpluses running a deficit, which is not sustainable because those deficits have to keep increasing in order for this recycling scheme to continue to close the loop. And especially due to the financialization of Wall Street and the City of London in particular, uh, what do bankers do if you give them 5 billion a day? They make it grow to 15 billion, 20 billion through mean, magical means of uh, financial derivatives and so on. So, on the back of this tsunami of capital, there rose the pyramids of financialization, which collapsed and destroyed this whole thing. Now, the reason why we've been in crisis since 2008 is because nobody has replaced that global recycling system. So, the G20 have to do it. They've, it has happened before, you know, in 1944 in New Haven, in um, the United States, New Hampshire, I should yeah. say, uh, the leaders of the West, actually including the Soviet Union initially, they met at a hotel and they created the Bretton Woods system that stabilized the global economy for 20 years and gave rise to the golden era of capitalism. Do we you, need something yes. similar. You've called for another Bretton Woods, but do you think the US today is constructive enough and altruistic enough to, uh, to pull that off. Uh, if you look at their attitude towards China, if you look at the transatlantic and trans-Pacific trade uh, partnerships and what they're trying to achieve, does the US have that capacity today? No, they don't have the capacity, but it was never a question of altruism. Because they were not altruistic in 1944, they were just smart. It was enlightened selfishness. They understood that after the war, their factories, even if they converted them from producing aircraft carriers and tanks to producing washing machines and cars, the American population did not have enough 
uh, hunger, enough demand for all those washing machines and cars, and they had to sell them somewhere else. Europe was bankrupt. It needed to be dollarized. Japan had to be propped up. So the Bretton Woods was a pristine example of intelligent, self-seeking behavior on the part of the United States. Do they have this? Not to the extent that they did then. This, there are still some very smart people in Washington, D.C. What they are now lacking is uh, a capacity to be a fully governed economy. Uh, unfortunately, the American Constitution, which the Americans seem to worship, is, uh, it is as if it was designed to create an ungovernable country. You have the White House vetoing the you know, Congress and Congress vetoing the White House. So as long as this is happening, it's very hard to see the kind of leadership from the United States which we need. But I have to say, and this is bringing the conversation back to Europe, Europe has become far, far more significant in terms of its relative economic weight compared to what it was in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So we have the same problem in the European Union. There's no governance in the European Union. Anybody who has experienced the Eurogroup, the European Union Council, knows that it is like a sausage. If you know how it's made, you don't want to touch it. So we have an ungovernable United States and an ungovernable European Union. China is the only, I know I've criticized the lack of democracy of the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm not going to take away from this criticism, but nevertheless, if you look at the leadership the Chinese authorities have shown in terms of economic policy, they are the only voice of reason over the last five, six years. They created a bubble on purpose in order to keep, they pushed investment up to amazing heights, 52% of national income, in order to give Europe and America a chance to get our act together. We haven't. The Chinese bubble is now deflating, as it would be. It's not their fault, it's our fault. Because we haven't come to the rescue, to the rescue of the global economy. We have not done our bit to restabilize and reflate the global economy. Yanis, in, in a few minutes we're going to start taking questions from the floor, so if you are interested in asking a question, please make your way now to the microphones. There's, there are two in the bottom section and two up the top. Uh, and please focus on keeping those questions concise. Um, as someone famously said, a question is a short sentence with a question mark at the end. Um, so if, you, if you're intending to make long statements, please refrain. Um, so, Yanis, what, what, what you've been doing since you uh, left your role as finance minister is you have been travelling around Europe and Britain giving these uh, talks and drawing huge crowds. And the response to you has been one of adulation. People are absolutely riveted by the sorts of things you're saying, what you're saying should happen in Europe. This stands in stark um, contrast to your treatment in the press uh, in Greece. Uh, uh, and, and elsewhere. Uh, and elsewhere. <laughs> so um, how, how did you respond to some of the criticisms? Um, for, and I won't go into, I won't even go to the vicious ones that are just silly, but uh, that you created a stalemate because you didn't have a proposal, uh, that you had no plan B if they shut down the Greek banks, uh, that you disclosed delicate negotiations, information, you know, nego uh, during negotiations while they were happening, and that, that in fact, uh, th that the Greeks are now worse off 
because they had to sign up to an agreement with conditions worse than the one that you were determined to knock back. The criticisms would have hurt a lot more if they were nuanced and somehow rational. So let me give you an example. Mary, you, you mentioned that, okay? For three weeks after my resignation, I was being lambasted for not having had a plan B in case they shut our banks down. I was being lambasted. I was portrayed as a naive fool who went into the battle without a weapon. Huh? Then I presented my, I, I published in the Financial Times and I spoke about it, what the plan B was. Then I was lambasted for having a plan B and I was even uh, threatened with a court-martial or a high treason trial for having had a plan B. So, you know, tails you lose, uh, heads they win. So, it's not a, that kind of criticism does not affect me. Uh, on the question of whether we had uh, proposals or not, you know what? The worst kind of propaganda, as Joseph Goebbels understood very well, the most effective part of black negative propaganda is based on the strategy of taking the truth, inversing it, and then repeating the inverse truth again and again and again. The truth of the matter is, and I, I, I can prove this, that throughout the negotiations, the only side that tabled written proposals during the negotiations with our, the Troika of lenders was our side. We did not receive a single proposal from them until the 25th of June when we received a proposal in the form of an ultimatum, which then when I asked the leaders of the institution, the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde, I asked Volkan Schäuble, I asked Mario Draghi, the head of the ACB, do you believe that this proposal that I'm being presented with as an ultimatum, that it is financially viable? All three of them said no. So you will allow me not to feel perturbed by these criticisms. It's a very simple situation. Our government was crashed because it dared challenge a failed policy program that the three institutions, the IMF, the ECB and the European Commission, were simply not prepared to discuss. Why they were not prepared to discuss is a long conversation and we could have it. Uh, on the question of... Um, well, let, let's take more questions. And I'll, yes, I'll I think we, it, we'll, we'll, give it, we'll hand over to you now. So we'll, go, we'll take four questions at a time. And as I said, please keep them brief. Uh, one, two, three, four. Yes, please. Yes, sir. Yanni, hey, my name is Vasilis. Um, from Australia, you seem to be, you were doing a good job trying to negotiate something better for Greece. My question to you was, why didn't you stay on and, and fight them and keep fighting them? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Oh. Hi, Anas. Yep. Um, in previous speeches, you've more or less argued that the left needs to uh, save capitalism from itself to essentially sustain the prospect of democracy and avoid the brown shirts, pretty much. Given that you tried very admirably but seemed to fail to convince uh, your fellow Eurozone leaders that this is a possibility, what does the left do now to counter austerity? Thank you. Yes, number Hi. three. Um, I was born in Greece and I moved to Australia about eight years ago with my parents. Um, but more than anything, I want to go back, uh, despite the crisis. Um, what would you suggest? Should I go back? Why or why not? <laughs> Number four, thanks. Hi, Yanis. Um, you've spoken a little bit about your plan B of a new currency. I was just wondering if your time in the video games industry, working for Valve Corporation on um, 
virtual currencies helped you at all with this plan B and what insights you got from it? Thank Should I you. ask them? Yep. Okay. First question is very easy to answer. Why did I not stay on? Remember the circumstances. We were elected in order to say no to another large loan which we knew we wouldn't be able to repay. Greece for five years has been sinking into a black hole. Why? Because we have a bankrupt state, a state that went bankrupt sometime in early 2010, late 2009, and the, the wise and the good in Europe, including the Greek government at the time, decided to deal with this bankruptcy by pretending it didn't happen. It's the equivalent of you not being able to, pay your, to repay your mortgage and pretending that you can by getting a credit card, drawing money every month from the credit card to pay the mortgage. Uh, it, it takes a six-year-old to realize that this cannot end well. <laughs> the Great Depression in which Greece finds itself is due to this. Our mandate, the reason why we were elected was not because we liked being ministers and prime ministers. Alexis and Tsipras and I were saying to one another, we are here in order to end this debt deflationary cycle on the basis of extending it. We are not going to get another loan until and unless we stabilize the Greek economy and we can look at our European partners in the eye and say to them, if we get another penny from you, we will only do it under circumstances which are such that we can have a chance of repaying you, unlike the previous loans. Now, the 25th of June ultimatum that I mentioned before was utterly non-viable. And as I said, the leaders of the great institutions agreed with me. They wanted to impose it upon us, another extend and pretend, for political reasons that were toxic and not ours. And we were elected to say no to this kind of loan. We, we took this to the Greek people. We closed banks and we asked them to tell us, to, to, to deliver the verdict. Should we say yes to this or should we say no to this? And our recommendation was that it should be a no. Remarkably, the Greek people, against the advice of every single television channel, every newspaper, every radio station, despite the fact that they were being terrorized by having their banks being closed down and having no access to their deposits, they voted 62% in favor of our position of no. That very night, I realized that the rest of my government, in particular my prime minister, was about to surrender to the yes. I had a choice. Betray the 62% and everything I had said for the previous five, six years, or, or resign. I chose to resign. <laughs> On the question of the left. You see, my whole thinking I have to confess this to you, about the crisis of 2008 is influenced very heavily by the 1929 experience and the Great Depression that it gave rise to. I think Bernd Bernanke, who was the chairman of the Fed in 2008 in the United States, was similarly influenced. Remember, he was a scholar of the Great Depression and everything he did with the Fed, quantitative easing and all that, had the intention of averting a repetition of that situation. The greatest failure if after 1929, politically speaking, was the left. Instead of using this collapse of capitalism in order to usher in a better society and to confront the forces of evil, firstly, it failed to confront in Germany 
to begin with, but in other countries too, the forces of Nazism. And secondly, where it prevailed, like the Soviet Union, it itself turned itself into a force of evil, Stalinism. So the left, I'm a, lef I'm a left-winger. But as a left-winger, I have a profound sense of our collective guilt as the left, both as failures in responding to crisis, and secondly, as failures in living up to our own humanist standards. So, to go into a discussion about how we should change capitalism during a period of crisis, when we are neither morally nor analytically capable of doing that, is besides the point. At the moment, we should get together with liberals, with centrists, with right-wingers who believe in democracy and who believe in stabilizing the global economy so as not to give rise to the serpent's egg. The Nazis in Greece, the ultra-nationalists here, the ultra-nationalists in the United States, in Britain, in France, which is about to fall under the spell of Marie Le Pen. Yeah. On the question of, um, should you go back to Greece? Of course you should go back to Greece. <laughs> It's the only place you'll get decent horta. <laughs> no, but you see, I believe in faith. I'm an atheist who believes in faith. As I keep saying, there is no empirical evidence that human beings are good. If you look at the history of humanity, we go from one disaster to another, from one crime to the next. And yet, I think that it is absolutely essential to retain faith in the goodness of humanity, and in the case of us Greeks, to, remain, to retain faith in the capacity of Greece to rise up from its ashes. And we need you. Um, Yanis, apropos uh, the young lady wanting to go back to Greece, one of the major problems uh, facing Greece at the moment is the massive exodus of young educated Indeed. people. Indeed. Well, the, you see, this is what happens when you have a debt deflationary crisis. When debt is, uh, is non-viable, it's impossible to repay. Everybody knows that. So there is no sensible investor who will invest in a country whose debts cannot be paid. And a country that is forced by the lenders, by the creditors, to set such high levels of, uh, sorry, such high targets for the tax take that they, as investors, as capitalists, think, well, if I start investing in this country and I have a profit, I will be taxed uh, so heavily that it is not worth doing it. So they don't invest, so the growth doesn't happen, so the tax is never realized. So all the, the, the targets of this program uh, fail. And the result is that young people are facing 60% youth unemployment. Uh, I, I, I've been a professor at the University of Athens since 2000, 2000, after I left the University of Sydney. For years, up until 2008, 2009, 2010, students used to queue up outside my office to get... Um, reference letters in order to do a master's, a PhD. After the crisis of this uh, um, debt, underinvestment, poverty combination, uh, they were queuing outside my office to get reference letters to find a job in Australia, in Canada, and to migrate. So we are becoming a, pro a protectorate with ha without a democratic sovereignty, we're being told in the Eurogroup that our elections cannot change anything. It, I, it reminded me, Dr. Schäuble's dictum reminded me of something that um, a cynic friend of mine in Britain used to say to me, that if democracy could change anything, it would be banned. <laughs> and the result is that the only export that we have 
in Greece is our young people, our human capital, who are highly educated, highly trained. Why? Because Greek families and the Greek state, that's very important, have invested a huge amount of resources into them, and who experiences them? Who enjoys the fruits of their labor? Foreign countries. But let me ask yes. the question very quickly about Plan B and Valve Corporation. Mm. Uh, on the question of Plan B, let me make this abundantly clear. Plan B was not about leaving the euro and creating a new currency. Plan B was cre about creating a parallel payment system in euros that would give us degrees of freedom so that if the creditors closed our banks down in order to terrorize us, as they did, and in order to blackmail us, as they did, we would be able to survive over a few weeks with this parallel digital payments mechanism so as to create the circumstances for a decent, honorable agreement with the Central Bank of Europe, with the Commission, with Germany, and so on and so forth. As for my experiences in Valve Corporation and elsewhere, my, what I say to my students is any research project that allows you to look at the same problem you've been looking at all your life from a different angle, it's worth it. And it, it, it brings useful insights. Yadis, when Paul Krugman was here at the beginning of September for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, he was asked a question about Greece and whether it should have exited the Eurozone, and he said that he was wrong, that in retrospect, Greece should have got out of the Eurozone. Well, I think I've changed his mind since then, because we had uh, I'm sure you a cup have. of coffee some time ago, a few weeks ago, and we had this conversation. At the end of that conversation, he agreed with me. And let me, let me say why. Paul is completely right. Um, if you have a fixed exchange rate between a surplus economy and a deficit economy, which gives rise to a huge bubble as a result of a tsunami of capital going from the surplus to the deficit country, building up house prices, uh, 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 Ponzi growth, unsustainable debt-fueled growth, and then suddenly there is a crisis as a result of Wall Street or whatever, and those bubbles collapse, and then all the burden of adjustment falls on the shoulders of the weakest member of this uh, monetary union, Greece in this case, uh, then the only thing you can do is either have an agreement where you ha have a proper federation or something resembling a federation, or you get out of it. This is what Argentina did in 2002. This is what Mexico did in the 1980s. They had a monetary union with the United States. They had pegged the Mexican peso with the US dollar, one on one, and exactly the same thing. Whenever you peg currencies together, but you don't have the institutions that are capable of creating shock absorption and checks and balances, you end up with a disaster, and then this peg is broken. The difference between us and Mexico, Argentina, um, the gold standard in the 1930s, let's not get into a historical account of all those cases where a, f a fixed exchange rate regime broke down. The difference was that Mexico had the peso which was pegged to the US dollar, we didn't have the drachma. If we had the drachma, of course, we would have devalued it, we would have cut the peg with the euro overnight. But if you don't have a currency to devalue, what do you devalue? You need to create a currency to devalue it. But given that it takes 12 months to create it, until, you know, from the moment you decide to, to go back to your currency, to the moment when that currency starts coming out of the ATMs. It takes 12 months. It's like the equivalent of announcing a devaluation 12 months before it happens. This is catastrophic. Uh, 
So I think Paul and I saw eye, eye to eye okay. on this. All right. Now we're going to take two last questions. So very, very quickly. One, two. Thanks. Hi, I'm an ex-student of yours, so you're kind of to blame for this question. Um, <laughs> um, you talked a lot about how um, there's always an incentive in a cartel to cheat. Now, like with a common monetary policy and separate fiscal policies, there's obviously always an incentive to cheat. Is it inevitable that the European Union's monetary system will collapse? And if so, should Greece be making moves, like you said, it takes a while to get back to the drachma, to go back to it if it's inevitable that they're going to have to or we'll go somewhere down like the Icelandic route. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Janis, for your address. Um, my heart, unashamedly, is with the Greek people in Greece and them losing their children all over again and becoming the serfs of Europe and the economic slaves to feed the European Union machine. Is not the battle now for the hearts and minds of those honourable who left Syriza and couldn't sign um, the last mnemonio? And if that is the case, then do you hold the torch then against you and your colleagues who would not sign, who left Syriza, against uh, the most horrific force, which are the neo-Nazis, that have been created, and I understand a, what, number two now, party in Greece. Um, I, I kind of... Okay, thank, thank you. you. Sorry, I'm going to have you. to stop you there. Lovely. Thanks. If we keep doing what we're doing, the euro will collapse. Is it inevitable? No. It's a political decision. This is why democracy is our only chance. Democracy, as I said in my address, is not a luxury to be afforded those who are in credit. It is an essential mechanism from a, for averting such catastrophic, high-cost fragmentation. Should Greece be trying to get out? Remember, it is impossible to start the process without turning into a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I, as a Minister of Finance, were to give the order to some company in America, Britain, Russia, to start printing drachmas, the information would leak and then we would be out of the euro the next day. <laughs> so remember, this is not like predicting the weather, this is a social process. But what we could do, we could create, we could move from paper money to fully digital money. And if all transactions were digital, as they are in Estonia, this is not pie in the sky, then suddenly the cost of a possible or a potential fragmentation they will remain high, but they will not be catastrophic anymore. It's a large, if you want, if, if a long technical uh, discussion you could have, we won't have it here. Now, is the answer after our defeat a new party in Greece? No, I don't think so. The le one lesson I learned in the five, six months, we had an opportunity, we could have, we could have started something in Greece that would have then been exported to the rest of the Eurozone with uh, beneficial effects for the whole of Europe. But we lost this opportunity when we surrendered. So the one thing I learned during those five, six months is that due to the commonality of our problems in Europe, the old political system where you start a party at the level of the nation state, you come up with um, uh, a manifesto, you make promises to your people, you ask them to vote you in, you form a government in Athens, or in Rome, or in Madrid, or in Lisbon. 
And then you go to Europe and you try to negotiate as a representative of your um, electorate this, and possibly forge some alliances with other similarly-minded political parties across Europe. This system does not Either we are going to create a pan-European movement of citizens who are concerned not about Greece, not about Portugal, but concerned about Europe and about the ill effects of this irrational economic policy and the fact that our government, our economic government, is a democracy-free zone. Either we're going to do this across borders and start pressurizing at the very same time throughout Europe the powers that be, or Europe will fragment with detrimental effects for Europeans and non-Europeans alike. It may sound utopian, the idea of a European movement. This is what I'm working towards and others are working towards. It is utopian. It's very difficult. But my address to those who accuse me of a utopian streak, my answer to them is that the alternative is a terrible dystopia.